Hello and welcome back to Blowing Cartridges, the podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tam, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Zach Clark. So Zach, as of recording, it's the 1st of April and we just witnessed the public execution of Mario. What, what are your thoughts about that? Look, I mean, Mario had a good run. 35 years, you know, it's a, it's a ripe old age. Um, we should all hope to live that long in, in life. And I just hope that, you know, all the best to Luigi taking on, you know, the crown of the <laughs> king of the Mushroom Kingdom. The true brother will emerge. But for those listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, the execution of Mario has been a bit of a meme lately, referring to the fact that Mario 3D All-Stars, or whatever that game is called, a collection of the three... 3D Mario games, Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, and Mario Galaxy was a limited release and is now being pulled from the Nintendo Switch eShop. And the pulling of the game makes us think about the fact that, well, ultimately, they weren't new games. They were just ports of the original games. They were effectively running on emulators on the Switch. And it makes me think about, well, the role that emulation plays in gaming and the fact that all these new games are constantly releasing every year, but there's still these classic games and even some not-so-classic games that gamers will always want to go back to and experience, ones that were from their childhood and even games that they didn't even play from their childhoods or even older than they are. And to discuss this topic and more surrounding emulation and playing retro games is our good friend Bryce DeWitt from the award-winning Nintendo Australian Nintendo podcast, The House of Mario. So... Welcome to the podcast, Bryce, and thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem, man. Good to uh, good to be on a new guest spot, especially since uh, Drew's been on as well. Oh, exactly. You can finally tell Drew that, oh, you're not so special, Drew. I've been on the <laughs> Blowing Cartridges podcast as well. That's exactly right. You guys are going to be world famous before we are. Trust me. <laughs> we make too many crude jokes. <laughs> but you guys have Reggie. We, we haven't quite got that big yet. I tell you what, though, like, uh, even just the joke that we have Reggie stuck in a room uh, pouring us drinks whenever uh, we do the show, like, uh, just actually actually getting in contact with Reggie in some form was uh, crazy. Like, obviously, we haven't got him on the podcast yet, but the fact that Drew managed to get on to uh, Spaces that one time and sort of get in a word and ask Reggie about what he- like, how far he soared down the pipeline of releases- before he left his position at Nintendo. That that was mad. And uh, hopefully that opens the door to get the actual Reggie on our show. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's just retired from, what, director of... Or one of the directors of GameStop. So, you, can, uh, you know, he's got free time now. So, you should, you should hit him up. I'm sure he's looking for his next gig. He hasn't ever really been too shy about attending, I guess, podcasts or anything like that before. Just Just bigger names. So, it is sort of a case of, like, we're not huge, but we are very focused and, you know, we've done a lot of recording at this point. So, I'm kind of hoping that perseverance shines through and he's like, huh, these guys would, you know, probably be worth jumping in and talking to with their passion and of Nintendo to uh, put the time in. Well, it'll all come down to how many GameStop shares you're able to get away with, I'm sure. Well, uh, you know, we know how valuable they are. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess going back to Super Mario 3D All-Stars I guess 
just to kick off the discussion, even though it's a bit more of a tangent, what what do you guys think of the proposition of ports versus remakes? I know a lot of people were upset that they were just ports and not up-resed versions, not not HDFI'd, not sort of not not remade to the degree that Ocarina of Time and Wind Wake and Twilight Princess have been. Do you think it took away from the celebration of Mario, or do you think there's something, I guess, primal and something nostalgic about playing the games in as close to the original form as we played them back when they first released? Well, honestly, it wouldn't be so bad, I think, like, especially with this collection. And this is quite the frustrating part for a lot of people that I know. And that is the version of Super Mario 64 that they used uh, was not the original English release one. Mm. from complete memory it was the version 1.1 version that was japanese exclusive i believe and removed like most of the glitches yeah that's correct it got rid of the was it the slide jump it's called or uh the backwards long jump yeah that's it yeah yeah so um they removed that as a result and that was like a main speedrunning tool and a lot of people uh, like the reason a lot of people would pick up this because it's just like you know, it, it's another way to play Mario 64 in a speedrun category, which, you know, that, that infuriated a lot of people. And then there was, like, the resolution problems on Sunshine. And, you know, I think I think Mario Galaxy was pretty okay. I don't think they had any problems with that so much. I'm all for, like, just re-releasing, like, collections of games and them sort of being more true to form to what they originally were. Um, as much as I'm like a huge advocate for Ocarina of Time 3D being exactly what it was, it was, you know, perfection in my eyes. But I do see the 100% appeal in just having that collection of like untouched games. But unfortunately, they these ones were untouched in the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, I think I tend to broadly agree. I mean, I think there's value in both, right? Like, there's value to your reimagining remake style games, like I don't know, like a Resident Evil 2 remake or that kind of stuff. They can sort of bring new life to something that hasn't aged, you know, particularly well. But from like a curiosity slash sort of remembering where you come from kind of thing, it, it is good to have access to these quote unquote original versions of these games, notwithstanding obviously the original versions weren't, you know, as high def as they are or, you know, may have been tweaked a bit as um, Bryce just said with different versions, getting rid of some glitches and that kind of stuff. So I don't think there's necessarily a problem around the fact that this was just a collection of of ports. I think really its issue from a marketing perspective sort of came from a mixture of a lot of rumours that sort of led people to assume it was going to be more than it was, but also uh, set, you know, expectations Nintendo themselves kind of set, albeit a very, very long time ago with the original All-Stars on Super Nintendo, which was, you know, effectively full remakes with updated, you know, 16-bit graphics, a little bit, you know, change in physics and that kind of stuff, uh, which this, you know, didn't quite live up to, um, albeit it was probably a a better collection in a sense than the... um, literal port of that super nintendo game onto a wii disc um and and sold at full price um what 10 years ago i guess or 10 years before to to sort of add on to that as well you know that uh i do want to put it out there that that was absolutely abysmal of them to literally just port all stars to a disc yes for the 
The th- was it the 30th anniversary? 25, 25. 25, yeah. 25, that's correct, yeah. But, um, you know, on top of that as well, the rumour mill is a killer. And that was mostly the problem with this, I think. And it is the problem with a lot of Nintendo games, which, you know, that includes uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield. Like, all these high expectations that a lot of these Nintendo leakers and stuff like that put out. It's pretty common for us to say on The House of Mario that you should take everything with a grain of salt and you shouldn't take leakers' words, you know, personally or, you know, as absolute gospel because I'd been around for a long time looking at, like, all these leaks and, you know, knowing Laura Kate Dale and people like that who are notorious for... their, their They have their community behind them that are like, what she said in the past has been correct, so I'm going to believe every word she says... And it just hasn't come out that way. And it, it does cause a bit of, I guess, genocide for these kinds of things. It uh, completely ruins any hype and, you know, any sense of, I guess, realism to people's expectations. Yeah, and I'd probably add one more point. I guess the one thing that you could sort of say, uh, ignoring the hype, the rumours, the leaks, I guess is some of the comparisons people do draw to like other packs of collections, right? Whether it be, you know, things like, you know, uh, Konami do like the Castlevania collection or things like that on, on Switch, which are a lot cheaper, but obviously they're also just ports or compare it to say Crash and, you know, Spyro having their, what I would call full remakes of, of three games in a sense um, on, on one disc or cartridge at, you know, a price actually even i think less than super mario 3d all-stars at uh, at recommended retail or if not less at least the same and so you can sort of see where people do i know we're starting to get into a point where people have an expectation of wanting more when you're being asked to pay what is effectively full retail price for even a collection of three of the you know arguably some of the best games of all time people still look at them as old games uh which is maybe not fair and i know it's something nintendo in particular, fight against the idea that games have to lose value over time, but uh, is unfortunately just, I think, a harsh reality of the way people's minds work. And I guess the sad reality of the fact is, well, we've seen through the Super 3D All-Stars is that, well, it's sold, probably sold better than Spyro and Crash, if not about the same. By the last check, it's sold a couple of million units, and it's just ports on a disc or ports that you download on the eShop. And the thing is with a lot of these uh, sales figures as well is they don't include eShop sales. That's the frightening prospect, honestly. I know looking at the eShop charts, it was always up there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It always, yeah. Because everybody loves themselves a bit of nostalgia. And the thing is with those three Mario titles, they come from very specific generations in Nintendo where they all had some sort of really big meaning to them. Mario 64 was... The, the first big jump to platforming in 3D. And then you had uh, Sunshine, which has always been revealed as a cult classic, but because not many people bought a GameCube, not many people got to experience it. And Mario Galaxy had probably the most amazing soundtrack in any Mario game, as well as some of the most unique designs that Mario's ever seen. So it's a really good collection in that thought process. But again, when... Zach was talking about the Crash and Spyro remakes. I think those games retailed at 60 bucks. You know, that's... Yes, they did. 
yeah, $20 less than the Mario collection and they were reworked from scratch, albeit not always to positives because I remember with uh, the Crash collection, they uh, rounded out the model, which made a lot of technical jumps for, I think it was the first Crash game, unachievable. So that was like one of the things that uh, people were quite upset about. Uh, And then I think... Other than that, it was, you know, highly received as just a fantastic collection of games being remade into something for a very cost-effective price for both Crash and Spyro. Look at the Activision remakes as a whole. Tony Hawk Pro Skater was the same. The first yeah. three games released, remade, and for about retailed at $60. Yeah, it was the first two. Yeah, that's right. I reviewed this game in written form for DashGamer.com. And I did it out of the own merit of my own wallet. Usually when you do written reviews or even in podcasting, if you've got some sort of tie, like, you know, we have products provided to us by Nintendo and, you know, we'll we'll say that before we talk about them just so, you know, we can at least sort of give that sense of ease that we're not just talking out our ass because it was given to us. But it was the same thing with Tony Hawk. Uh, I sort of paid for it out of my own wallet. And I remember saying, Dash, I'm like, I have to review this game. Can you please let me review it? And he's like, do you want a code? I'm like, I don't need one. If you give me one, I'll take it. (laughs) But I don't need one. I scored that game a perfect 10. That game, I think, has to be the probably the best uh, remake slash remaster that I've seen in many years because it was pretty much one-to-one but all the benefits of the latter Tony Hawk's games like with comboing from manuals and you know just all the niceties that made Tony Hawk's Pro Skater like three and four and even Thug just awesome games to play and shoot for high scores so reviewing that was not hard at all and I think again I think that game retailed at 60 that time it was only two games but they took essentially the mechanics from, I think, probably Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 and injected them into Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 and just made an absolutely beautiful little nostalgic collection. Which is basically what you want, right? From like a, a remake rather than, say, a, a direct port, obviously, is, is sort of bringing those modern you know advancements you've made over decades in many cases of, of developing a game series and, and sort of allow these old games to to sort of have new life into them like looking back at the mario collection i know a lot of my friends who picked it up and and sort of worked their way through them super mario 64 like the camera is quite awkward in today's world when you have dual analog and you could have a much smoother camera almost ripped directly from you know super mario sunshine and it would have maybe maybe some would say make the game easier i don't know but it would have definitely made a lot you know handle a lot more comfortably you know that's kind of the level of quality of life adjustments that would be great to see in more of these ports remakes whatever you want to call them even if you still leave in the option to have things function the way they used to as well as a just a kind of tick the box thing in the menu sort of like uh i think the halo master chief collection did a lot of um you know, having a lot of turn off, turn on again things to sort of replicate the true original Halo experience versus a slightly updated one. Actually, just while I'm thinking about it, I am going to flip it back to Tony Hawk for a second because I've just realized that that game series is an absolute perfect adage for this discussion. 
Are you guys fans of those games at all? Yes, I am. Okay. Boy, I was always a big fan of the original first four. Yeah. So then you'll probably know that this wasn't the first time that they remade the first two games. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and the first the first attempt was absolutely shocking. Yes, it was. They were unplayable. They were absolutely terrible. So, you know, a, a lot of the hype writing on this set of remakes was sort of like, well, they've done this before. It seems like a mindless cash grab. But Tony Hawk himself, on like, he was on Twitter promoting the shit out of it. He was really looking forward to it. And he's been the biggest critic of his own games for the longest time. His favorite one is the original one on PS1. And, you know, that that's... And, and all and be all. He was looking for a copy quite some time ago. And I believe an anonymous Twitter user ended up sending him one. But the version that they put out, I think... God, it'd have to be about six years ago now. I think. Yeah, it was, it was PS3 gen, from memory. Yes, it was. Uh, it was, like, near the end of that console's life. And they were arcade exclusives, but they did nothing right. Like, the mechanics were clunky. They were using a whole new engine. Uh, the engine didn't fit the maps at all. There was no combo potential tricks like manuals or reverts or anything like that that made later entries in the series much more fluid. And overall, it was just a very chop and, I guess, glue together experience. Whereas the ones that came out more recently are clearly far more polished and had far more work put into them. And we're showing a lot of love. And, the, I mean, that shows. So, do you think that the, I guess, remakes and, I guess, remasters have been a bit elevated since then? Because I think if you go back 10 years ago to Pro Skater HD, they did seem to be cash grabs. Like, there were some good ones that were clearly lovingly crafted. But there was a whole load of ones that were absolute messes. Like, you had Pro Skater, you had Silent Hill, you had... Zone of the Enders, which were all notoriously disappointments and upset a lot of fans. Well, now the majority are well regarded. Like, yes, you have criticism of Crash and Spyro from some purists, but on the whole, people are very happy with them. Well, see, I don't even necessarily think that's entirely true either. I just think that depending on the company that's willing to invest the money at the time, will either go for mindless cash grab or you know, they'll try and target the audience well enough that people will be impressed by it. Um, and that, in turn, is more profitable than shelving out a piece of shit, which, when you look as far back as Ocarina of Time 3D and Majora's Mask 3D, I think Ocarina of Time 3D was nearly 10 years ago now. Launch of the 3DS, which was 10 years ago. Yeah, that's right. So, it was a little bit after the launch. I think it was maybe about six months down the line or something, something along the lines of that. It wasn't day dot. Because, let's face it, the uh, 3DS's launch lineup was not great. (laughs) Steel Diver was a masterpiece, clearly. Well, Steel Diver, Rayman 3D, and Metal Gear Solid... uh... Not even Snake Eater, no. That was after launch. (laughs) Was it? Yep. Well, damn, there you go. Oh, no, Street Fighter. Street Fighter was the other one. Got my yes. Nintendogs Toy Poodle Edition, or Nintendogs <laughs> plus cats, I yep. should say. Plus cats. <laughs> yep. Don't forget the cat overlords, Zach. Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, no, you'd be you'd be shot for forgetting. But those <laughs> games were awesome back then. And it really is just chop and change as times go on as to whether we're getting shit ones or good ones. Because for the last decade, 
there's been good ones at the start, shit ones in the middle, then good ones, then bad ones, then bad ones, then good ones, then good ones, then mm. bad ones, then good. And it really just, it all comes down to whether the company really respects what people desire from a product that has already been released. And it's highly important that they get it right. So with the 3D All-Stars collection, I think it is sort of like, I'm not going to stand in its rescue. I enjoyed it fine enough because it's classic Mario games that I can play. I've played them before. I've played them in the way that they're presented. And I'm fine with that personally because Mario has an art style that doesn't really age that much out of proportion. But I think the issue with it was is that it seems that as the Switch's lifetime sort of goes on, they're putting out a lot of good products for the Switch. There's no case in doubt about that. But with, you know, Sword and Shield and the complaints about that and the rushed output that seems to have gone on, and then you've got this collection of Mario games that's limited time only, and they're basically saying if you don't buy it now, you'll never get it again, and forcing people's hands along with the fact that it's an $80 collection that the only thing that they cared about was patching out glitches that made the games constantly replayable for a lot of people, to be completely honest. It kind of just really shelled over really badly, especially with all these high hopes and everything that were coming from all these leaks. I think you've hit the nail on the head, because even if you look at another remaster or port or what you want to call it that Nintendo released at the same time, the Fire Emblem shadow dragon and the little blade of light or whatever yes. the english translate yeah it is that but released at the same time yes you, there was the 90 dollar limited edition version that came with all the like fake nintendo power and whatnot but you have the download version on the eShop, and that was only nine dollars and that has all an english translation that was never in it before that has quality of life improvements that make it a bit more bearable because as someone who tried to play the original NES version, that's a tough game to get around just mechanics-wise. It, it hasn't aged very well, but they were able to sort of bring that into the modern era in an authentic way that a lot of fans were happy with. Yes, it's not the most accessible game, but I guess it serves a role as a as a remaster, as bringing something from the past to the present that people can try to enjoy or enjoy for the first time. So it it shows that there's ways to do it successfully and there's ways to do it as a cash grab. And this is from the exact same company. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is just whether they respect their audience enough at the time to give it to them, I guess. Like Nintendo knew it would sell. It is a collection of three games that everybody mm-hmm. loves. I don't think that, you know, any Mario fan jumps into Mario, well, Mario Galaxy and then goes... Can't play Sunshine and 64 <laughs> shit games. Rah, rah, rah. Like, Nintendo fans have never been, I guess, retro bashers because that is Nintendo's legacy, is retro games that are very good and still hold up very well today. Just to really harking on the point that you still do occasionally, if not frequently, see uh, companies get caught up in their own hubris and, and fail, I suppose, with some of these ports. I mean... We definitely saw a few flops last year. Like, I think it was, like, 13, or uh, I think that's how you say the name, that yeah. reviewed quite poorly with a change in art style. And, of course, my least favourite, uh, <laughs> Final Fantasy Chronicles HD, which was just an absolute um, 
yeah. shit show from day shit one, show. that one. Literally. And I mean, <laughs> still doesn't work in Australia, is that right? No, I saw it was 40% off their advertising, and I'm like, well, I can't even buy it for any percent off or <laughs> give you any money for it to play it. So, um, fat loaded good, that does me. Thanks, Twitter, um, for the ad. But yeah, like, it goes to show just like how much, I guess, companies think of their fans and just kind of assume they're going to, you know, lap it up. And sometimes it's just about meeting that sort of MVP, which I think Mario All-Stars 3D kind of ticks that box of meeting the MVP, particularly for a brand that's as beloved as as Mario. Well, obviously other things like Final Fantasy and, and you know, even Warcraft 3 as well, they can show you that even titles you would think are too big to fail can fail if you don't sort of meet that minimum threshold of uh, of work done on them. All this conversation brings up the question of why do we care about remasters and ports? Why, why do we want to play these games that first released 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago? What, what's the overall appeal of it? Because I guess if you think outside of gaming, it's an appeal that exists in other formats of media as well. Like, you see movies remastered all the time. Like you can go see absolute classics like your Gone with the Winds and your Great Gatsby's and your Dirty Harry's and whatnot, and they'll be remastered to HD, 4K, or you'll see things like the Snyder Cut of Justice League is probably the closest thing a movie has to a, a video game remake in some ways, bringing back the old content. And then if you go to music, well, you have remasters all the time because, well, the fact is the audio equipment and technology that existed 30, 40 years ago is nowhere near as good as today. So you see well, redubs and remasters of the original masters of CDs and the like that have superior audio quality. So I guess why do we want to go back to these old games when well, every year, every day there's new games coming out and some of them are a sort of modern day classics and some people absolutely fall in love with. But the appeal of older games isn't just to people that play them back in the day it it's broader and why do you guys think that is personally i think it comes down to two there's two major factors one is nostalgia which Mm. should be quite obvious set on its own but the other is new perspectives so we held a lot for these games when we were younger as by an example of say like mario 64 or something like that but playing them these days you know, it's it's not as half as much of a di- difficult thing as it was before. They can be quite quick experiences, a good hit of just like, wow, I used to play this as a kid and now I'm just, now that I've sort of developed my gaming skill a little bit more, I guess, it's not as hard as it once used to be. So I can sort of just fly through this and have my sort of nostalgic feeling there for a bit and see the game in what what is probably a completely different light for, you know, a lot of people. And I think... A good example of that is speedrunning communities, I suppose, because a lot of the people that choose to speedrun a game have played that game quite like quite before, unless it's something new, obviously. But a lot of the Super Mario 64 runners and stuff like that, they were all playing that when they were kids, and they probably saw that as a much more different experience than they do now. And so I guess when you jump from having that bit of nostalgia to be like, oh, you know, I'd like to go play that again. And then seeing a perspective of like, I wonder how quick I can get it done this time. And that happens with a lot of people. And there's multiple reasons for it. And speedrunning is only just the case I'm using as an example. But even a friend of our show, and most people tend to know him on Twitter, under the handle 
JDP Cart 18, which is Jamie Penning. He has joined up with Player 2 and started putting up Donkey Kong Country 2 runs on their YouTube channel, I think it was. And that's a game that he held, like, very dear as a child and still does. His his love for Donkey Kong Country is huge. And uh, his favourite of the lot is Donkey Kong Country 2, Diddy's Conquest, which is the name everybody fucks up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What a pun. Oh, yeah. But he... I th- I th- I'd have to say probably in the last six months, I think I've seen him post about rerunning that game for a better time, maybe about four or five times. And it's not so much what he gets from it is, you know, ah, I just want to beat my time, but he just genuinely loves the game as well. And it, it keeps him coming back every single time because they've developed games to the point where games these days that are made are anywhere up to like 80 to 150 hours experience. And, you know, it really, really ever sort of gets to that point where you're like, well, I would like to do this again because now we're adults and we don't have that much time. But having a quick romp in a game like Donkey Kong Country or Mario 64, something that can be finished in like three or four hours, you think, hey, that's $15 on the eShop. I'm going to pick that up and play it because I feel like having that short experience that's satisfying from start to end and I'll get it finished in a day as opposed to the 80-hour experiences that you'll play once and then in the future you'll go, will I play that again? Probably not if it's going to be another 80 hours, right? And retro games, they have that complex about them where they felt so much longer as kids, but these days with... I guess, gained experience with a controller and mindset and knowing what your goals are, they become that quick satisfaction experience thanks to nostalgia and perspective. Yeah, I think that's definitely two of the main reasons. And I think probably the last, well, not last, but one of the the third pillar would be experiencing games you just missed out on, whether because of age. Like, I know for me, I you know, Smash Brothers is what sparked my fascination with Nintendo, so... Yeah. When, you know, I got the Wii in the virtual console, I was, you know, all about going and experiencing these franchises that I hadn't got a chance to, like even the crappy ones like Ice Climbers. I just wanted to see what is Ice Climbers about, where do they come from? Or, you know, one of our friends, um, he's a he was a PlayStation slash PC kid growing up and uh he's recently been on a um what he's calling his like living his alternate timeline and he's played through all the Zelda games. He's now playing through all the Mario games just to see what they're about and why, you know, so many people love them and coming to appreciate them on his own. So uh, having access to them on a, a modern consoles and, and something that doesn't require you to go tranging through cash converters or eBay to get legitimate copies, you know, special converters to have it play in your modern HD TV is great, I think. I guess honing in on the point you just mentioned about your friend who's been going back and playing these Zelda and Mario games, I guess I've always thought about what attracts us to play games that were older than us, to be frank. Like, I myself have gone back and I've played the original Super Mario Bros. to completion multiple times, for example, and I've gone back and played Zelda 2 Adventure of Link, which I absolutely love, played the original Metroid, and these are games that in many ways haven't aged particularly well. There's a lot of frustrations in them. There's points where basically... You have to pick up a guide, and I have no idea how someone back in the day got through 
Zelda 2 without a guide when there's just really obscure, annoying mechanics to it. Like, oh, you have to just kneel against this wall for a bit and the tornado will come and carry you away. Or, or that might be Simon's Quest Castlevania, but still. <laughs> it's just things like that that make you mad. But And then there's other older games. Like, I couldn't get past the original Legend of Zelda. It's just a bit too frustrating, a bit too archaic for my tastes. And it's just always made me think about what, like, yes, I'm, I'm a historian at heart. I love to go back to these old experiences and see where these beloved franchises come from. But it's a wide, wide market share of the gaming industry that people want to go back to these games, not just for nostalgia purposes, for something more. Like, I, there's, there's something timeless to video games, despite archaic mechanics, despite aging systems of gameplay that I think it does make the format unique. And I think, like, I, I got to I gotta give you credit for that third pillar because, to be completely honest, I was just thinking from my own perspective. <laughs> but the third pillar, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's dead on because at the end of the day, these are experiences that we're never going to get again in a new and updated form. It, it just doesn't exist. They don't make games like that anymore. The way that they're sort of now made is more or less... If, if they're not quality... And they're not worked on to that degree that customers are going to be satisfied. Well, then you probably made a outdated and old product, whereas these games are a product of their time. So going back to them and playing them as they are is is something special. Like it, it's kind of weird from the uh, prospect of stuff like even just thinking of like the Philips CDI games. You know, <laughs> I really wanted to play them just because they are dumb. They are stupid games that make absolutely no sense and were just cash grabs by Philips to capitalize off the fact that they were given the right to make Zelda games. But emulating those games is so hard. I don't know if you've ever tried, but like, yeah, obviously it's hard enough to get a Philips CDI and it's hard enough to get a copy of the game. So your best option is to emulate them. Emulating a Philips CDI is just about the worst process you could possibly think of that requires, like, knowledge of using Python and PowerShell. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, my God. It is so bad. And I did it and I got it working, albeit I couldn't get the controller to work properly and I had permanent loss of use of one button. I can't remember what button (laughs) it was, but I, I did manage to get it to work in some capacity and being at the age of people who grew up with all the YouTube poop memes and, like, all that shit that surrounded the CDI games. I just wanted to see how terrible they actually were in prospect, but also see how much of a product at the time they were because they were just shocking games. So I played The Wand of Gamelon and I played the self-titled Zelda. The self-titled Zelda, I, I, I don't know what they were thinking, (laughs) <laughs> it was awful. Everything was like every texture in that game was like somebody took a really shitty camera and snapped it and then just put it over a layer and be like, cool, here you go. And it had no direction like whatsoever. And that's not something that you see that is crafted badly. A lot of games that have no direction when you think of things like Journey, where it's kind of just like keep moving forward. And you will discover the story through the nuances that are happening within the game. But the kind of no direction that that game gave was literally 
there is no direction. You get a, I don't even know what they call it anymore. Just a re- just a real time video of like some guy dressed up in a crappy wizard suit going, oh, Zelda had to do this. or And you're like, holy shit, what is this? And then when you played <laughs> Wand of Gamelon, it was like watching a terribly made fan cartoon of Legend of Zelda, where it's just like, what if we just made Link a dickbag and Zelda just a bratty kid, I suppose. <laughs> and playing that and the difficulty in that game, because the hitboxes were shocking and it I never want to see that in a new release ever again, but I'm happy to play that if it's an older game, because one, I know that I'm not paying full price for it, for starters. In fact, I'm not paying a price at all because there's no way I'm paying $1,000 or something for a legitimate copy. But just seeing how wrong that they sort of got it back then and how that translates even now, like, that game would not sell. It wouldn't leave the shelf at all. The only reason it would leave the shelf is for people that literally buy it for the joke. And... It's not something that you'd ever get in this day and age because that game would just be pandered. It'd be like, you know, oh, this is just straight out terrible. Two out of ten. The only thing going for it is you can hit stuff with your sword. No point. But back then, while it was the same thing back then, now it is a good retrospective on how companies can fuck something up so much that it becomes a completely unplayable experience. Speaking of companies fucking things up, it's really interesting to see the real, like the landscape of how everyone's treating and trying to deal with preserving or making available all these old games, or in many cases, not trying to. And, you know, we've seen Microsoft, I think, knock the lights out doing, I think, genuinely fantastic work at preserving the Xbox brand's catalogue as best it can and making it playable on whatever modern xbox you have xbox you know series x s or in many cases even starting to get as much as they can on pc or cloud nintendo a weird halfway out house if anything taking steps backwards from their wii and wii u era of you know having the virtual console to um, more of these packaged products or you know the nintendo switch online app and then Sony, I don't even know what they're doing anymore. They like just pulled down the PS3 and PSP and Vita stores and haven't really suggested that they're going to make any genuine attempt at making those digital and, and non-digital games uh, playable on a PS5 or a PS4 or anything like that. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on, I guess, generally how the industry's coping or not coping with um, making sure people can buy or even if not buy, just play these games without necessarily need to resort to coding in random uh, emulators <laughs> to just get it to function and still not have one button work. <laughs> not needing Python to use. I think there's been a bit of a backward step on it, honestly, in that if you look at when the virtual console first broke on the scene with the Wii, a lot of publishers got around it. They were putting out a prolific amount of games, really. Like, if you go back and look at the catalogue the Wii virtual console had, it's quite astounding because you had a lot of, like you had major releases from a lot of different publishers and then you had a lot of more obscure games. Like, yes, there were, there were holes in the catalogue. There were games that a lot of people were calling for for years that never got there. Like, people wanted Earthbound for about a decade and that didn't see a release until the Wii U. But on the whole, you saw 
the majority of games you would have ever thought of for these consoles released for them. Whereas now there's not really that main spot that you can go to on a Switch, on a PS5, on an Xbox One, and you can click into it and say, oh, here are all the NES games, here are all the Genesis games I'd ever want to play. Like, they are on the console sometimes, but a lot of them are either hidden away in collections, like Sega will have their collections, SNK have a few, and then you'll have other companies that just, I guess, drip feed them onto marketplaces. Like, you've had those... Oh, well, S&K games were drip-fed on, onto those uh, e- online marketplaces. Yeah, arcade classic releases. And some other companies have done similar things. Or even failing that, you've had companies that will just plop single downloads onto on like e-shops and online marketplaces like you've seen with all the old Star Wars games. Like, And then they get limited run releases that are generally quite pricey. So... I feel like it's become a bit more inhibitive in some ways. I don't think they're trying at all at the moment. Like, Mm. I personally just feel like it's all sort of slowly going down the gutter. And I say this under the pretense that the current news is that the PlayStation Portable, Vita, and 3 shops are completely shutting down. And with them, a lot of titles are going to go obscurely missing in July I guess my predominant example is we're about to, in in July, we'll lose access to a lot of Persona titles, for example. On uh, PSP, Vita, and PS3, across all three of those consoles, in some way you're able to play Persona 1, Persona 2, Persona 3, Persona 3 Fez, Persona 4, and Persona 4 Golden. And apart from Persona 4 Golden, which has now been ported to PC as a test run for Atlas and PC games, that whole catalog's just gone. Like, you're not going to be able to purchase it anywhere else unless you go and track yourself down a copy or, like, get it now. Like, go to the PlayStation Store right now, download it, and then never wipe your console. There's no preservative effort whatsoever as of yet for them. It's just disappearing. And it's a real shame because sort of just looking at it from that perspective of, well, the only way to own them is to own what would probably be a very overpriced disc of a PS1 game for Persona 1 and 2. It's not really fair to the consumer whatsoever that will never get to experience it. Like, there's a lot of people that uh, hold high esteem for Persona games, especially now, these days. A lot of people are going back and playing the original 2 and then Persona 4 Golden, with that being released on PC. That's nice and everything, but... The spin-off titles, I suppose, we'll call them, even though they're just DLCs to the main game, they feature different endings entirely, including the missing content and stuff like that that sort of comes in the newer titles. So, most recent example, Persona 5 and Persona 5 Royal. There's content scattered all throughout that wasn't in the original game, so it does like change the experience throughout And that's the same that goes for games like Persona 3 Fez and Persona 4 Golden and their respective original titles. Those games change entirely because they added in content throughout the story to change the story at the end. So you're never going to get the original experience by playing Persona 4 Golden or Persona 3 Fez because they are made to differentiate the experience from the original. But Persona is just the example like Ape Escape and games like that 
those games, I, I don't think they have a spot on the PlayStation 4 store. And a lot of people loved Ape Escape when that came out as well. I still remember playing that as a kid. I was never a PlayStation kid. I never owned one. But whenever I had access to a PlayStation, I played Ape Escape. That's going to disappear, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that hasn't got a backup on PS4 or PS5 yet. And then on Nintendo's side, they've taken a massive step backwards, as we've said. With the Wii and Wii U, they were both fantastic consoles for preserving the historic side of Nintendo's catalogue, especially the more popular ones. And you can still kind of access it. The Wii shop has been shut down. The Wii U shop is still up. But it it's not going to be long before the Wii U shop is just completely kaput. Like, that game console was a commercial failure, as we all know. It sold 12 million units. There's really no reason for them to keep that shop alive much longer, apart from the virtual console. Which, you know, is why most people still own a Wii U that invested in it from the beginning and never gotten rid of it because the switch doesn't do it the switch doesn't really do virtual console justice at all the nintendo online thing is nice and not having to pay you know seven dollars per game or what have you is good and everything but the hardware of the switch itself is not really designed and suited for anything past probably nintendo 64 because we do have doom 64 and turok i believe as ports not virtual console titles but ports to the system so i think it suits them just fine but with hacking on the switch and stuff like that i can't even guarantee just from my memory that gamecube stuff is portable to the switch or wii stuff is obviously we've got uh, galaxy on there but you know we're still missing the wind waker and twilight princess which should hopefully come this year with zelda's anniversary but I'm not really holding on to that. Those are two experiences that people who never bothered to pick up a Wii U probably won't get to. There was additional content in those games and changes to make those games a lot more free-flowing and less frustrating to play. And they show no sign or care to bring back Virtual Console in any capacity. Whether that's because they think it's hindering their sales of new games or whether they just can't be bothered because it's not worth the monetary value is up for debate, personally. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to know why. Because I just look at it and I I can't even picture that being the case. Like, maybe you're right that maybe people are less likely to buy the new Mario if they can play the one they played as a kid. But when I look at the sales of, like, a Mario Odyssey and, like, breath of the wild and stuff i mean there's clearly people that want the new stuff too and yeah you're right i think it's real disappointing to see the way nintendo went yeah i mean my wii u is also like the home to all my wii stuff as well because i did the transfer of which was in hindsight maybe stupid but i <laughs> that day one launch hype i i moved everything over so all my WiiWare and stuff and virtual console games are stuck on that and really hope it never <laughs> kicks the bucket but to again sort of highlight i think the one company that's doing it well is 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 very much microsoft like i mean to be fair unlike sony and nintendo uh they have a slightly shorter history uh at least on the console space pc they've been around for a long long time and pc in general i think has kind of got the issue relatively sorted um i'm sure there are some games from the you know 80s 90s even early 2000s that you could struggle to play on a um modern pc without some sort of um you know emulating of an old os but 
overall, you can probably play whatever you want to play. But yeah, the Xbox family, like even as of today, it's it, it's crazy how I can play you know games I bought for my original sort of like Xbox three sixty um, digitally and without even having to pay again on my Xbox if I got a Series S or an X today. Uh, and even I think today they just announced there's original Xbox Xbox three sixty games as well both coming to the cloud service so if that worked in australia which i don't think it does but correct me if i'm wrong hypothetically i could be playing you know banjo kazooie on my phone (laughs) which is crazy and without having to pay for it again um or if you have game pass i'm sure a lot of this stuff's included if you're you know that kind of person that prefers just browsing a library and i just love to know what is microsoft seeing in terms of the value proposition that it just doesn't seem to be resonating with the other players because there must be something that they they're getting out of it because i doubt they're just doing it because they're you know massive enthusiasts of preserving (laughs) games but yeah sony nintendo just seem to be sort of on the other end of that spectrum these days i definitely agree with microsoft being you know the best place for well the best company for porting over old stuff now but i do think it is generally down to the biggest issue that Microsoft has at the moment won't have in the future, mind you. They are actively fixing this problem. But their first party lineup and exclusive lineup right now, not fantastic. Mm. And they've got a lot of studios sort of working, like they're in the background. The acquisition of Bethesda, there's plenty of things they've got in the works and they know that is really going to solidify their console down the line. And I think that's magical and everything, but right now, owning a Series S and Series X, as good as that backwards compatibility is, that's all they've really got right now. Uh, Halo Infinite was supposed to be a day one title, and what they had shown was not impressing people, so they delayed it. And that was supposed to be the reason to pick up a Series X or S day one. And unfortunately, it didn't happen, but... To be honest, it was probably for the better anyway. Just really polish out. They need an amazing Halo title to really push that console into their next phase. So you've got Obsidian and stuff like that working on new games. I think the next thing that's really being hyped up for them is Scarlet Nexus, which I'm sure will be a pretty awesome experience for what it is. I'm not sure if Bleeding Edge has been in full release or whether it's still in beta, but I haven't heard anything about it so i'm assuming that it's pretty mediocre for what it's worth (laughs) with bethesda's titles obviously right now you know you can go and play pretty much all of bethesda's library right now through game pass you pay you know your premium for game pass which is a striking deal by the way i don't understand how there's still people on the internet that think it's a scam We love scams on this podcast, bros. Oh, they do. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get how people think it's a scam. Like, you're, that's pretty much what you're paying for for everything else, except Microsoft just does it better. Anyway, there's plenty of things to look forward into the future where it's just like, okay, Xbox is going to be the first place to play Elder Scrolls 6 for the first year because I think Phil Spencer isn't really interested in keeping games gated from other people, but... I do think that they need that driving force of like, hey, we got Elder Scrolls 6 first if you want to play it. And, you know, sort of just going along the lines of that as well with the... It's something insane, like 12 companies that they've uh, grabbed over the last two years. 
Like, it's a lot of really solid studios. But for the time being, going back to those old games is pretty much your content at the moment, unless it's a third-party title, uh, which is a bit of a shame in its own respects. Uh, I have a Series X in my lounge room at the moment, and I've played plenty on it from all different generations of gaming, including the newer stuff, I suppose. But that newer stuff is also mostly available on PlayStation 5 as well. So when you're talking in terms of buying a console day one and playing new games, you would kind of expect more, and it hasn't really happened just yet. The medium, which I think... Was that? I think it was. I think it was Xbox exclusive. The medium didn't score well in reviews. So, as interested as I am to try it out, I'm also not lining up to be its next big fan either. If it's uh, only scoring pretty mediocre, what else? What else did they have? The Falconeer. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I think that was. I think that's like a fifty dollar title, and it's. I think it has a small story and then a multiplayer mode, but apart from showing off some nice graphics, was also sort of subpar. And yeah, without Halo, it's been sort of a hit and miss from day one. I am very impressed in having all this access to older titles. And, you know, I've got, Jesus, a few console games sitting there like uh, Fable Anniversary and Conquer Live and Reloaded you know, to sort of chuck in the drive and just have a fun time with. But at the end of the day, uh, those are the experiences that I have with the Xbox Series X at the moment, as opposed to having those big first-party experiences that PlayStation got pretty much day one with games like Miles Morales and Demon's Souls. Going back to a comparison I brought up earlier, it very much just reminds me of the Netflix streaming model, especially early-day Netflix, where the Netflix original content was a bit hit and miss. Like, yes, there were some sort of instant hits like your first couple of seasons of House of Cards and some other TV shows that they funded. But those very early days of Netflix is very much people wanting to re-watch a lot of old TV shows and a lot of old movies. And I feel like, in a way, that's the sort of tactic that Microsoft has taken that Yes, we're going to have original content. We've bought Bethesda. We've bought all these major publishers, major developers, but the games aren't there yet. The games aren't ready yet. So we're going to leverage our back catalogue. We're going to leverage these great Xbox original games, these great 360 games, these great Xbox One games that some people might have not played. Like we said earlier in the episode, some people might just want to see the origins of the Xbox brand. Some people will have very fond memories of the original Fable, as you mentioned, Bryce, or the the original Halo games that they want to play again with their friends. And that's what will get them engaged with the console. That's what will get them playing. And then when the new content hits, they'll froth in the mouth over that and they'll be day one at the next Halo in 2022 and day one at the next whatever Rare's making. I, they don't even know what they're making from the looks of it. but Weren't they making Everdell? Isn't that what they're doing? Yeah. What is that? Exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they themselves claim they don't really know oh, what yeah, the okay. game is going to be. Yeah. Maybe something. That is why you, you just know it's, it's going to release very soon, clearly, Zach. They're very yeah, confident well, in it. Look, the sooner they can stop that and the sooner they can make Viva Piñata 3, the happier I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine Viva Piñata in VR. That would be Ooh, frightening. Don't tempt me. <laughs> 
get that uh, HTC Vive going and just have a good old time. Smash a hostachio and then, you know, just see how it, see all the candy fly everywhere. <laughs> Had to salvage that to not turn into something crude. <laughs> <laughs> but I think going back to where we started this original train of thought, I think that's where the the ideal future of retro games is that we have services like Game Pass or what Microsoft is doing where these games are accessible for a relatively low cost. Like, yes, there's about half a dozen streaming services now and they all have subscription fees, but it's relatively easy now to go watch old TV shows. Not like if you went back 10 years ago, the only way to do it would be either hope that there's a DVD box set, which was always sort of over $100 or hope that you had a Foxtel subscription and you'd find some obscure channel where they were doing reruns and you'd sort of religiously tape every episode and try to catch up that way. Yeah, I think I'd even settle for just, you know, when I buy a new machine, just have my stuff from my old machine work on it or Mm -hmm. just instantly be there. Like I had to replace my phone because my old one died. And then when I, you know, logged into my um, Google account, it just kind of like, downloaded everything and it was my old phone again like the same background the same wallpaper apps in the same spot like an xbox is getting there definitely but i'd love to see that for the other two just you know if i turn on my ps5 just see all my ps4 games that i digitally purchased just ready to go just let me i'm probably because i haven't got a ps5 maybe you can but like you know switch for example like if i've got virtual console games it would have been great that i could just play Super Mario Brothers rather than have to get NES online or buy a uh, game and watch to play instead. <laughs> oh, God. Which is also now gone kaput too, now that I uh, yeah. think about it. That also got executed in public. Yeah, it did. Yeah, the uh, public showing. But um, yeah, no, I wish that they did it just as well as well. I, I remember when I got my Series X here, like I, I'd got my new TV, which... Uh, is getting repaired at the moment because it had a shipping fault and a crack appeared at the bottom of the screen and then screwed the entire thing. Uh, um, fortunate. Yeah, yeah, I paid $3,000 for a TV. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We had it about four months, and then uh, while Drew's wedding was going on, we were all out of the house for the weekend. The TV was fine before we left. We come back and turned it on. There was a big black line through the screen. I'm like, oh. So it was, it's just like a crack that's come from the bottom of the panel and it's just progressed like very slowly. And I guess it just gave. Anyway, but yeah, I had that TV ready to go and I got my Xbox and I was like, right, bang, straight in the lounge room, you know, get that set up. I want to see this thing looking absolutely epic with, you know, Immortals Phoenix Rising and stuff like that. Stuff with the really nice colors and like pure 4K goodness. And, you know, it was great that it wasn't that hard of a transition to move from my one, which had been delegated to the bedroom console where I would play my retro games when I'm in bed and just like my stuff around console and just be able to move the stuff that transitions well, I suppose, to the Series X, whether it be, I guess, stuff like Apex Legends or, you know, Rare Replay or Master Chief Collection, uh, just the stuff like that. And just being able to hit transfer and have everything sort of move over was awesome. And I wish that that kind of ecosystem could be implemented in the other two brands. But unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to get that good. 
with Microsoft's ecosystem at the moment, while I didn't purchase a one in the beginning, thanks to a, a good old friend, Don Matrick, I did buy it later on in its life. And I'm like, yeah, I like this console. It's just a shame that it doesn't hold much leverage over anything else that is currently on my shelf. But with the seamless transitioning and then you've got Game Pass, which is now encompassing for the One, the Series X and S and the PC for a very good cost. It's been a very good ecosystem. As soon as I set up that Series X, I was like, cool. All right. I know this is what I'm going to want from it. And that's all that really needed to be was something that could just transfer immediately. I'd have all my old stuff there ready to download or even it was already downloaded on my One and then all of a sudden it was on my X. And it just made that much of a difference for me in realizing that things can be that simple. But unfortunately, they aren't really doing it well and like on Nintendo's side at all. And as far as PS5 goes, I'm not entirely sure. The only thing I really remember was people kicking up an absolute stink about uh, having both PlayStation 4 versions and PlayStation 5 versions of the Avengers game installed on your PlayStation 5 just to transfer a save file, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Oh, no. It made no sense at all. I don't know how they ever stuffed it up that bad. And I assume it's quite a large file size for those games. Yeah, 80 gig. <laughs> oh, you know, no. Just to download it and, well, if you can transfer it for your PlayStation 4, I suppose, then fair enough, but... If you can't, then, you know, that's another 80 gig download. It's probably, for the PS5 version, it'd be 120 gig plus with all the nice textures and good ringings and stuff like that. Just to transfer a save file that's probably no bigger than 8 megabyte. It's ridiculous. But yeah, speaking about, you know, how most companies aren't doing it great, some are doing it okay. I guess the question that I think always comes back to with trying to play these old games is when is emulation via non-official means okay like for some people it's all the time for others it's never if you look at the companies like you know nintendo would say it's never even if you're just trying to play some smash bros melee with your friends uh online um and they won't you know haven't provided a method to do that uh, they'll they'll shut you down so i'm kind of curious to see where you guys land on that because I, I think it's fair to say like anyone at our age we've all dabbled in emulating right even whether that's you know yesterday or whether that was when we we're in school and learning how to use project 64 to play you know nintendo 64 games on our school computers um we're not innocent people we've all emulated that's oh, exactly <laughs> oh don't you love playing smash 64 with a keyboard and mouse those were the days oh yes oh mm, <laughs> perfection oh the way it was meant to be played. Yeah, they, Mario was meant to be controlled with WASD. Like, that, that is no <laughs> doubt about it. Get your control sticks out of here. We don't need them. <laughs> then you have to plug in four keyboards so you can play four player, but you have to assign different keys. Oh, yes. Or when <laughs> yeah. one person is on the left-hand side of the keyboard and the other person is on the right-hand side. Oh. oh, my God. Those were the days. What the hell? Why? Why have we come here to this part where... We don't have that anymore. <laughs> that is a true way to do co-op. No doubt about it. Jokes aside, personally, I always draw the line on if I have to download a fan translation to play the game, which I've done for a lot of games that 
because I'm a big fan of JRPGs, big fan of Fire Emblem, as I like to shoehorn into all these podcast episodes, that if I want to play the old Fire Emblem games that were Japan only, well, I have to download a fan translation to it to do so. I have to patch a ROM to do so. Like, getting these games, yes, I could go on eBay, I could go on Japanese Amazon or Japanese Yahoo, get a copy sent to Australia and then download the ROM myself, put it on my computer and then patch it that way. Or I can just download a ROM and patch it. And that's honestly what I've done when I've played those games. Yes, I could do it the so-called legitimate way, which, well, I guess I shouldn't say so-called, it is a legitimate way to do it. But in a way, I'm effectively not playing if I bought the game from Japan, I wouldn't be playing that game. I'm playing a altered version of it. Yes, mm. it's semantics. Yes, it wouldn't hold up in court. But I guess that's my sort of ethical view of it. I suppose this would be a good time to drop in a talk about my Wii U. Yes, please mm. do. Because <laughs> your Wii U okay. sounds like a emulation god. Ah, oh, I love it. Okay, so first off, high recommendation for the Wii U. Never thought I'd ever, ever say that at all. But the Wii U is a pure virtual console machine. Like, it's hard to get it going because the hacking community is so small in comparison to the Wii, which, you know, can do very similar things, but only to a point. The highest it can do is Wii, GC, and then, you know... Some of the older stuff that's available on the eShop, like Nintendo 64, you can get some injections in there and maybe try and get that going. But, you know, at best on a HDTV, you're playing them at 480p and the Wii doesn't really hold up well on newer TVs. So, your next best uh, best option is the Wii U, which has HD support and, you know, can easily connect to your TV and has that little bit of extra processing power to do more than what the Wii can. And as a side bonus, you get a Wii built in with the Wii U. It has its own virtual Wii. So that being said, if you don't own a Wii U, you can do similar things like this to your Wii, but I won't go there too much. Wii U's are cheap, pick one up because you won't regret it. So I started my little hacking journey with this as a way for me to, I guess, play all the older games that, I cared about, but no longer have a method for playing. My line, I guess, when it comes to this, is I've purchased the games in some sort of prospect before, so I've paid my money for them. And me being able to play them on something that, you know, whether it be a Wii U or an emulator, if I've already paid the justified price for those products, I should own it, right? Most games that I've ever purchased have always been directly from a retailer brand new. They've never, never, I, I've never really hunted secondhand copies because I don't like getting a dud copy. I learned my lesson with uh, Nintendo 64 games back in the day that secondhand copies are very rarely ever worth my time. So knowing that I had purchased it from a retailer, so the money has gone directly to the publisher. Technically, I've paid my my dues for that game, so even if I've gotten rid of that game, I've gotten rid of multiple Nintendo 64 games over the years, for example, I paid my dues to the publisher. The people that bought it off me, pretty much, they didn't pay anything to the publisher, but I did. If I want to emulate those games, I think that's fair call. 
some people might not agree with that but to be completely honest with you like there are a lot of people out there today that will go and hunt secondhand copies off of marketplaces of brand new games before going to eb games they will purchase them and none of that money goes to the publisher which is kind of unfair really because as we know the secondhand market's been under peril for some time but to be honest if it died i wouldn't i wouldn't blink to be completely honest that being said the wii u has become that machine for emulation for me in its own prospect the wii u should be known as the best virtual console machine nintendo's got simply because the shop's full of full of great titles by native respects the only thing it's really missing is gamecube which can be fixed so when i started this i went in with the attention that i wanted to play NES, NES 64 and Wii primarily. I wasn't sure about GameCube because GameCube has never had a digital shop whatsoever. So you would think, shit, that's a little bit hard, right? But with this Wii U, with a little bit of tweaking, and I'd like to say like just getting the homebrew channel and stuff on there took no longer than about 20 minutes. I gave access to myself to... NES, SNES, Nintendo 64, GameCube, Wii, Wii U, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, Nintendo DS, Dreamcast, Saturn, Mega Drive, Arcade Systems, PS1, and a bunch of like really obscure arcade OSs, right? There's a lot you can do with it. So uh, if you've ever heard of RetroArch, which is like, well, RetroArch, it's short for RetroArchive, but I always read it as RetroArch. It is the all-encompassing emulator. And that emulator, basically, you install a core, which is like the commons file for the CPU into RetroArch, and RetroArch immediately becomes an emulator for that system. It doesn't work with everything. So like the aforementioned Philips CDI, it can't do uh, and stuff like that. But just about literally anything else it can do. Now, RetroArch is available on literally everything and that includes Wii U. So even without installing things natively, if I have the ROM and I put it on an SD card or a USB drive, I can play it through RetroArch. But I wasn't happy with that. I like looking at my games natively on the screen clicking on them and it launches straight into the game rather than launching an emulator, going through my files, clicking on a game and going through there like that. So going that one step further, I looked into making games native on Wii U. So everything that I just mentioned to you, except maybe the Sega systems, PS1 and the arcade titles can all be made native to the Wii U. So you can just click it on the home menu and it launches straight into that game. As we know, you know, the Wii U had access to ds titles it had a few virtual console titles for ds on the wii u eShop, and it's fantastic but the problem with it is is that while it's all fine and good to install those titles natively what doesn't really work is when you're trying to install stuff to it that's not native and it requires you to jump a few hurdles by injecting a piece of code from a game that is available on the eShop into a game that isn't so that the game recognizes as, oh, hey, this is launchable on a Wii U. 
it's a bit of a jump around and I've had to do it to a few games just to get it to work. But other than that, it's worked perfectly. I have so many of my old classics on that system. I have, I think, like 60 plus games at the moment. All of them I've owned in some capacity. And as I've said before, I've always bought first party from a shop because secondhand titles have never been worth my time. So I've paid my dues to the publisher and there they are ready to go. It is quite incredible how good of a system Nintendo can make for a virtual console machine. And it is actually extremely frustrating that they haven't even perused the idea to do it yet. As we were sort of talking about it before, it went down really well on the Wii, it went down really well on the Wii U, and people are very disappointed that it's not on the Switch. But a lot of people hold nostalgia for Nintendo titles, so it is almost like quite infuriating that they haven't created a console since then that is sort of a little bit more all-encompassing for virtual console titles. The Wii U is your best option at the moment. It takes not much at all to set up. I went and purchased a brand new Wii U. Uh, Not brand new, but uh, hardly used. I'd say maybe about 10 hours worth of play. Purchased it for about $150. So it's my second Wii U. Just to do this, because I wanted it to be as pack fresh as possible so that it'll last as long as possible. And I've just filled it to the absolute brim with whatever I can think of, whatever I've purchased, whatever whatever matters to me most and sort of just put it on there and anything from any of uh, Nintendo's main titles and handheld titles are just right there ready to go with not much effort at all. It has uh, been an awesome emulation machine and when you're thinking about all these older titles and your ways to access them, there really isn't any without that option of uh, hacking a console. Especially with the Switch, obviously, we've got uh, the apps, I guess we'll just call them. I'm not going to read out their full names. <laughs> yep. But uh, as, as good as they are, and probably a more beneficial way to play them in some perspective, I know that they're not going to cover Nintendo 64 at this point. I just, I see it. You know, they're not, they don't seem too interested about going back and revisiting it. They aren't going to cover GameCube, which is the biggest problem at the moment i feel is that uh, a lot of the gamecube stuff these days without an original gamecube is not playable or at least a wii and finding copies of the games is extremely hard again and Wii, i suppose has there's a lot of wii's out there floating around out there and it's not too hard to get a hold of one to be completely honest a lot of people sell them on marketplaces for about 50 dollars, but then it's also tracking down those titles again because they haven't released those digitally. GameCube being the most barren because they haven't ever released digital copies, I suppose, for the GameCube, whereas for the Wii, they released stuff like Mario Galaxy 2, Xenoblade Chronicles, uh, Metro Prime Trilogy on the Wii U eShop. I just know that there's a whole lot of titles that they never went back and even bothered to try and push, which is a shame because I would buy them all over again if I could. And they're not giving me the option. So, with the knowledge that I've already paid for the product before, and still using proprietary Nintendo hardware to play them as they're intended, I feel like that's entirely fair. To be completely honest. I agree. I think you're right. Yeah. A lot of people find it a weirdly thin line to tread when you 
sell a game secondhand or whatever and, you know, somebody else, whatever. Because I'm contributing to the same problem where I don't like buying secondhand copies, but I'm selling my secondhand copies. But it's usually because the hardware that I have them for is long gone and dead. So... They're just paperweights at that point. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, what what else are you supposed to do? Like, even... I've still got a whole big handful, maybe about 15 Nintendo 64 games sitting in my cupboard, but I don't have a console to play them with, like, at all. Which, buying a decent Nintendo 64 that's going to last another amount of time, and then, you know, you've got to think about ways to put it in a new HDTV, which isn't always possible with a lot of these older systems these days. If I can use a machine that sits under the TV, is technically proprietary hardware by Nintendo, and I've already paid my dues for the games that I've got installed on the system, then what's the what's the real problem in me doing that if I've already purchased the games and paid what the developers want for them? Yeah, I mean, I think he hit the nail on the head. I mean, to me, like, I, I used to be on the side of the law and be like, you got to at least own the game currently um but over time i've moved away from that and really sort of that i think as you said that line around will you let me pay money for it if Mm. not then i'm going to play it some other way kind of thing is is a real Mm. for me the line in the sand because there's so many companies who are, are making a lot of money by just releasing barely touched sort of ports uh to systems so if you're not even willing to invest the time and effort in doing that, then why should I feel ashamed about just wanting to have a bit of nostalgia or experience this game that maybe never released in Australia, like you said, Brendan, through other methods? <laughs> well, especially when there's games out there now that if you want to actually buy a secondhand copy to play it as intended on original hardware, you're talking sort of five, six hundred dollars, maybe even more. Like, look at copies of Snowboard Kids 2 on the oh 64. Oh, my God. Don't even like, remind me. If you want a complete in-box copy of that, it's like $1,000. And yep. that is, you cannot play that any other way. It's either original hardware or emulated. Like, that, those are the only options. Whilst you were talking about emulation on the Wii U, Bryce, I was thinking about, well, the old argument of, oh, well, emulation is all well and good, but it's not as good as original hardware, but... I'm sure you'll agree, and I'm sure Zach has some two cents to add to it, but I think we're sort of getting to that point where emulation is getting pretty close to original hardware. Like, I think in a way, there's still that magic of sort of putting a cartridge in a 64 and picking up an original 64 controller and going at it, but I think the experience is getting pretty close in other methods. Like, you see other companies like things like the Retron 5, things like... uh, what was that ga- the Game Boy that Drew wanted? The Pocket? What yeah, the... Analog? The, uh, the analog. analog. Yeah, Analog. Yeah. Analog yeah. Pocket and the Analog NES and Super Nintendo things. So, basically, you can put your original cartridges in. And you can put, like, basically flash cartridges in. and So, you can emulate things on it or you can... And you can play original cartridges and discs on these formats. So, I think there's avenues that offer the best of both worlds with non-original hardware in that... I think ultimately that's a good thing because all these old consoles are electronics. They have moving parts. They're all going to fail eventually. We'll we'll get to a point where, yes, you can repair old consoles, but we'll get to the point where it's not really feasible anymore that the cartridges will start to break down, CD rot will 
getting the CDs and whilst you can repair the hardware, you can't repair the CDs, you can't repair cartridges, you can't repair circuit boards. So these are all going to fail eventually. So if your, your Wii's hard drive dies, all those virtual console and WiiWare games gone because the shop's gone, things like that. Well, exactly. So it's not just limited to CDs and cartridges. It's also limited to, I guess, the closed walled gardens of these publishers. So downloading ROMs and emulation is sort of one of the, ironically, one of the best ways to preserve video games. Yep. I 100% agree. And I think the encompassing message that comes from all of this is that if you aren't going to give us the option to purchase the game and you've already purchased the game before in some respect, then mm-hmm. what really is the problem? Because, again, like, you know, if they offered these services on the Switch or PlayStation or whatever and they gave me the options to purchase these things, then I would purchase them on the proprietary hardware rather than emulate them. The problem is, is and you know, circling back to Snowboard Kids too, I cannot express how much I love the first game, and I could not express any more disappointment in finding out that the second was so expensive to buy. It is so ridiculously expensive to buy. As a result, I'll probably never play it because I haven't ever purchased it, and I might diddle around with it on an emulator for a bit, but I'm not going to sit there and pretend like. Oh, yeah, purchase Snowboard Kids too. because if I did, I'd be rolling in dough. I wouldn't be keeping that on my <laughs> shelf. Like, are you kidding me? But that's about as far as it goes. If if I had the option to purchase Snowboard Kids 2 on a digital service, then I would go ahead and do it. Same with GameCube games. If I had the option to purchase them on a digital service, I would. And there is, you know, some certain exceptions to it, like uh, Super Mario Sunshine, for example, in the All-Stars collection, which we've very much talked about already but that game is purchasable so i purchased it as opposed to emulating it or putting it on my wii u or something like that i would rather support the endeavor that they want to do these kinds of things and re-release these games i will gladly purchase them a second time because that's the legal way to do it but if you're not going to give me a method to purchase them and i've paid my dues for the game before I really don't have a problem with going back and being like, hey, I'm going to put, and this was a big hit at uh, Drew's Bucks Party, Mario Golf 64. Oh, good one. Like, there's no way to purchase that. And there hasn't been at all since, mm. since it released. But I love that game, as obscure and weird as it is with its self-inserted human characters that, you know, they tried to make Mario Golf people which is, I don't know, weird, man. Like, Plum and... Oh, God. Who were the other two? I, I, I don't know. I'm not even going to think about it. But they were like, if some EA Sports executive went off and said, hey, we want an actual golfer guy in this Mario golf game. <laughs> and they're just really awkward looking. Anyway, diverting from my point. I really want to play that game again. I paid for that game full price. I will play it. And if, you know, if you're not going to offer me to do it a legal way that allows me to just purchase it straight off a shelf or a digital store like you were doing in the Wii U days and they no longer do anymore, then what other choice do I have other than to emulate it? Because I don't have a working Nintendo 64 to play that anymore. Uh, So that's my best option. Well, exactly. And even if you did have a working Nintendo 64, you probably don't have four controllers or... A couple of controllers will have 
broken sticks and it won't be an optimal experience. So I 100% agree. Like, I think ultimately, ideally, they need to offer options to play these games, even if it's, I guess, as narrow as a mini console where you can get a collection of 20 curated games on a particular console and you can play those. And because that's what I've found with the Super Nintendo Mini. Like, I had a lot of fun with a friend one afternoon playing Kirby's Dream Course. was a game that neither of us had ever played before in our lives. But who would have thought that a Kirby golf game would be fun? (laughs) Yeah. There's inherent value to these publishers giving us the options to play these games. Like, Konami did it in a great way with the Turbo Graphics PC Engine Mini, but then they went around and were like, oh, you can only buy through Amazon and you can't get in Australia. And, like, I had to go through all these different hoops to get it a unit so they just never seem to even when they try to make it easy for consumers to get these games they just like to make it hard as well it's one of the most infuriating things i've found in the last sort of 10 years even those mini consoles i've hacked them too (laughs) of course because because why not if it is a game that is made to emulate the proprietary hardware and i've got games on there that i've owned like to some prospect i don't have a huge super nintendo collection but i've owned some games that aren't available on there and i would like to play them with a snes pad so why not just inject them if i've got the cartridges it it says that i own them so i'll just put it on the snes mini and that's what i've done you know like i've done that with the snes the nes mini i i hacked it i didn't really do much with it because to be completely honest with you there's not much in the Nest days I can think of that's not already on that Nest Mini where I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I'll put that on there. And those mini consoles are, you know, no joke. Those things could emulate Nintendo 64 games and GBA. I think, Brendan, sorry, you just hit on one point. I just want to sort of, I think it almost rounds out a lot of what we've talked about from start to finish is almost that intentional decision by companies to make it difficult in some time, some cases through this sort of artificial scarcity, limited release, get it while it's hot, um, which which really just ties back to 3D All-Stars, the Fire Emblem port, um, and some of these mini consoles, like you just said, the uh, PC Engine TurboGrafx system. And that's where I also get pretty, like, frustrated. Because once they've, especially once you've done the work, why make it? impossible to get you know anyone that's logging onto the you know bought a nintendo switch today cannot digitally at least buy 3d all stars they just they're too bad you gotta either hope that your retailer has stock which they probably do but say they don't in a year's time or uh buy a second hand copy which you know to your point bryce doesn't even get the money back to the developer that kind of practice is what really is is pissing me off more than anything i reckon because Oh, I was going to say, yeah, because that's not even a matter of not wanting to put in the, the time and money to make it accessible on a system. It's it's just genuinely trying to, like, put FOMO into the customer just to shell out their money quicker than they may have otherwise. Nintendo, if you're listening, I bought that game twice. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> I bought that collection twice. I paid $80 for it twice. And the reason I did that was because the physical run is going away and it's going to be scalped like hell and I want the option to play it in a f- in the future when my Switch hardware dies, right? And I bought the digital version so that my physical copy would stay pristine. 
So the way it is at the moment is I've got this big collection of, you know, Switch games. It's like the the system where I'm retroactively trying to keep my collection in perfect order without getting rid of any copies of anything whatsoever. And that is the one game that is wrapped on my shelf because I will not unwrap it. Because as much as as much as we like we'd like to say we better hope that, you know, retailers have it on their shelves and like all that stuff, they are scalpers are going to run it through in the next week and they are going to snatch it all up and they are going to start selling them on eBay for one hundred and fifty dollars and just absolutely run wild with it. And they've created this problem themselves. Nintendo, again, I bought two copies. That's $160. And because of this decision, you are now forcing people to buy copies that will effectively be $150. So the price, almost the price that I paid for two copies of it, just to get one copy. And this is a huge problem with even Pokemon games recently. Buying a legitimate copy of Soul Silver that's used with no box or anything, no Poker Walker, no nothing, $200. $200. And then I think the price is dropping for Diamond, Pearl, and Platinum because the remakes are coming out and it sort of devalues it a little bit. But uh, Black and White and Black 2 White 2, there's no reliable way to emulate them apart from on PC. You can't do the Wii U method which I'm very saddened about because DSi enhanced games will not run because they check to see whether you're running DSi hardware or not, which the Wii U is clearly not a DSi <laughs> and nobody's figured figured a way to disable that function yet. But those games, I think, are $250 each, no box. And there's a case that they might be fake because people love to make counterfeit copies of Pokemon games. They certainly do. And it, it that is a huge problem. And creating that shortage is causing people to make a profit off of your titles by obscure amounts. Like, it is impossible to find copies that are less than $100. And if you manage to find anything that's less than 150 I applaud you. It is absolutely sickening how terrible it is. And it only comes down to one entity that can fix this problem. And that is Nintendo or the publisher that supplies them. There's no reason that uh, they want to make the case that like Pokemon games and stuff like that. Uh, these days, obviously, it's not so bad. Sword and Shield are digital. As early as X and Y are all digitally purchasable from 3DS stores or all the way up to Gen 8 in the Switch store. But these games that are sort of left in limbo, whether it be... Until the remakes were announced, Diamond, Pearl, Platinum, Black, White, Black 2, White 2, all those games, they have absolutely no functional way whatsoever of being purchased digitally. So their their pricing through the roof has skyrocketed as such, whereas games like Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald have remakes, so their value is not as high or Fire Red and Leaf Green. You can play the originals of those games on the 3DS because they've got it through the eShop. Then you've got Gold, Silver, Crystal with Heart Gold and Soul Silver there is still some capacity in a way to play Johto. But as for Gen 5 at the moment, which is the main case in Limbo, they've driven the price up ridiculously high. And instead of making remakes to try and shelve out more money, and this is like the alternate case in what we were discussing between like, you know, the quality of Crash and Spyro collections as opposed to Mario All-Stars, they could just release 
Gen 5 games on the 3DS eShop, people will buy them for 40 bucks or 50 bucks, and they don't have to do anything to them because the 3DS can natively run NDS. So there's no reason they can't just put it up there and then save everybody this terrible hassle of scalping and profit driving. Like, both you boys have Pokemon cards and you know what it costs to get is essentially a defunct set. So think like Hidden Fates or something like that. Buying an ETB for Hidden Fates, which was only in Sun and Moon era. It would have been the same as retail price before uh, Logan Paul went and did his stupid first edition (laughs) stunt. It would have just been retail price to purchase them. Now you're looking at $400. That's double the price of what they're worth. Well, double if not more the price of what they're worth, which is absolutely ridiculous. And it's an epidemic that's spread to video games and it's really upsetting. You're exactly right, Bryce, because, well, it's proven by track record that if they make these games available, it's profitable for the publishers themselves. Like, look at, take your example of Pokemon. Nintendo on the 3DS, they finally did put out Pokemon games on the virtual console. They put out all blue, red, yellow, and gold, silver, and crystal in the end. I believe crystal's on eShop, yeah, it isn't is. it? Yeah, Yep. I think crystal has been the number one purchase on the 3DS eShop from the day it's been on there till today. I don't yep. think anything has toppled it. Nope, Every I week. think you're right too, yeah. And it's like, it's that's just a no-brainer. Like, how much would it cost for them to do that? Like, virtually nothing. nothing. Like, virtually nothing to do that. And it's a moneymaker for them. So, I guess just- They're emulated. They're emulated, guys. Like, hmm. they literally have a, ga- a, a Game Boy emulator on the system to run these. It's not, like, it takes no effort. They just convert the file and they're done. And hackers have been doing it for ages. Exactly. It's just from outsiders looking in, like, just a no-brainer business-wise. It prints money. It just, it really frustrates me. And I think, ultimately, I think it's a good place to close this episode off. Because I think, ultimately, at the end of the day, when we're talking about emulation and remasters and ports and all manner of different ways to play these games, at the end of the day, we just want the option to play these games. I think all of us can agree that we just want an easy, accessible way to be able to play Mario 64, to be able to play Sunshine, even if it's in its original form, if it has some quality life improvements, if it's remastered and has a new coat of fresh paint, we just want to have the ability to go to Mr. Nintendo and say, here's my $20, here's my $10. Thank you very much. I'm going to go do that for the rest of my afternoon. I'll play, I'll relive some great memories. I'll make some new ones. And instead we have to go to, learning Python, we have to go to emulating <laughs> defunct consoles like the Wii U. Like, we have to pull out a PC and get the latest emulator. We need to go to a third party and buy an analog, whatever they call them, and do it that way. Like, it's just not an easy way to do it. Or we spend a ridiculous amount of money. I've done it. I think you do it too, Zach. <laughs> I very much admire Bryce because he avoids buying secondhand games, but the amount of money I've spent on secondhand games is ridiculous, I think. I bought a Sega Saturn at one point and I'd never played a Sega... I'd never seen a Sega Saturn in my life until I bought one on eBay one day. So, like, those are the lengths I go to just to try old consoles and old games. And it's a really important part of video gaming. Like, when we talk about music, we talk about films. Like, there's always old classics people say, oh, you must watch that, you must listen to that. And 
things like Netflix, things like Spotify has made that really easy to do. You can stream it with ease. Like Spotify, you don't even need a subscription. You can use the free version. Yes, you get bombarded by ads, but you can use it and you can enjoy it. So I think we just need a way to do a similar thing with video games. And I think Microsoft has shown the way. I never thought I'd say that, but Microsoft has shown the way. (laughs) And I think if more publishers embraced it, I think we'd be in a better place. And even Namco or Capcom now have their online servers that they put in old games on. Capcom, right? I think they have a... Are you talking about that Capcom arcade thingy on Switch, or am I? Yeah, it's, is it an arcade thing or yeah, that Capcom arcade thing that they sort of uploading games to, like that's yeah. sort of a good model as well because well that gives you option to buy what you want. It's remarkable that as we said at the middle halfway point of this episode, the Wii showed the way forward. Like the Wii Virtual Console was the ultimate marketplace for this stuff. We've regressed in the last ten years, and I think I do I do fear where we're going really. I 100% agree with it all. It's really depressing that I just, I would love to play everything natively. Like, it doesn't matter. I I don't want to have to result to having this hacked Wii U as much as I love it and the work I've done on it and what it provides for me is exactly what I need. I would rather have this stuff officially. There's no ifs and or buts about it. Again, that's why I bought two copies of 3D All-Stars. I want to be able to have this stuff officially at all times, even when old consoles go offline, like the DSi shop or the Wii shop, or eventually, very soon, presumably would be the Wii U shop and these PlayStation shops are getting shut down. Uh, I don't want them being shut down have to equate to my loss because I decided to purchase on those platforms, which is exactly why Xbox is doing it perfect at the moment because it backtracks all the way to 360 saying ah you just don't get them anymore is exactly why i have a physical switch collection as opposed to a digital which is sad to say because that console is amazing if you could use it digitally but that's where drew and i differ is he's he's opted for the digital because the conveniency is amazing on the switch and being able to slot in i think it's up to what is, I think it's future-proofed for four terabyte on a micro SD. Mm, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, being able to slot in a four terabyte card and having everything on it sounds like an amazing thing. But eventually when that eShop goes defunct, you don't own those things anymore. They're not like physical copies. Why is that the case when you spend $80 on a game and those purchases don't free and fully transfer over like it's butter like it really should it did for the wii and the wii u at least to some degree you had to pay a bit of a fee to move the licenses of some titles but i would rather that be the option than losing my purchases worth of money that makes no sense to me at all yeah i think we're all on the same page here i just you know I dread the day that my Wii U dies and then my copy of Bonsai Barber on WiiWare just goes away and I'll never be able to play Bonsai Barber again. And that's the fear we live with when you don't let port these these catalogs to future systems. <laughs> Lest we forget the Bonsai Barber. Port Mischief Makers somewhere, please. Oh, please. So happy I have a cartridge of that. <laughs> I have one too. I don't buy, again, I don't buy secondhand games very often, but when I want something, 
I, wa- I can't resist. So I think I bought like three cartridges from a market. One was Jet Force Gemini. One was Mischief Makers. And then I can't remember what the third one was. Two of them worked, which was the one I can't remember. And Mischief Makers. Jet Force Gemini is something I've always wanted to own. And it was dead on arrival. Killer. I've never actually played it. Um... No, neither. Neither. That's exactly why I wanted to own it. But nope. That reminds me of this Saturn game I really wanted called Shiny and the Holy Ark, made by Camelot, the Golden Sun and Mario Sports fame developers. And I got one copy, didn't work, disc was scratched the hell, got it off eBay, so I complained to the seller. And you know what? The seller was like, oh, I have another copy. I'll send that to you. The second copy comes basically identical to the first copy I got, <laughs> oh. also scratched the hell, like... So now I have two copies of the same game, <laughs> like paid $50 for one and got the second one, but they both scratched the hell, tried to resurface them. That didn't work because I was like, oh, they don't work. I'll try to do something like that was a lost cause. So I have two discs of this one game that I really wanted to play and can't play either of them. And I think that goes to show why it's so hard to be like, I want to be a purist. I want to play on original hardware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it only gets worse as time goes on. Let's remember that. Well, with that, I think it's probably time to, as always, pull this train into the station, Zach and Bryce, and take the cartridge out of the console, give it a bit of a blow and put it back on the shelf. So thank you, as always, for joining me, Zach. I think it's always a good time discussing our thoughts and feelings about these very pivotal topics in gaming. And thank you very much, Bryce, for also joining us for your first time we definitely hope to have you back on again because i think you really had a lot to offer in this space and i know from listening to the many many episodes of the house of mario you always have some very passionate and insightful things to say hey thanks man i really do appreciate the nice comment but yeah i've uh, gladly very much enjoyed my time so if people want to find you, if people want to find the House of Mario, where can they go do that? Because I think I do urge all our listeners that if you aren't familiar with Bryce and Drew's podcast, definitely give it a listen. Yeah. So Drew and I, we run a podcast called The House of Mario, which we started as a passion project, uh, Jesus, four years ago now? Five? Yeah, that's about God. right. God, holy crap. We're nearly up to episode 200 and we've uh, recorded many, 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 many hours of uh, podcasting audio, including uh, episodes that had to be recorded because, you know, Audacity hates us all. <laughs> but you can find us on most major services. Uh, if if it's got an RSS feed, you'll find us there. You know, you'll find us on iTunes. You'll find us on Spotify. You'll find us some of our stuff on SoundCloud, but I think we've moved off, moved on from it. Again, Spotify is free. We've already talked about that. So, uh, yeah, give us a listen on there. We also... Keep regularly updated on social media, but only one, and that is the uh, House of Mario Twitter page. I believe it is just at the House of Mario. If you like my own voice and like to see my opinions around the place, I guess you can follow me at Ivy Riven on Twitter. Uh, and I guess I stream on Twitch sometimes when I'm not feeling lazy and just want to play something at uh, Revan Live, I believe. So twitch.tv forward slash Revan Live. And Zach, if people want to find you on social media, if people want to follow the podcast on social media, if people want to complain about the podcast, which I do recommend you don't do that, where where can people do that? Great questions, Brendan. But first up, I'll start with where they can find you, you know, to be selfless, uh, give you the first shout out. You're at 
Tamazoid on Twitter. I'm at Egorino on Twitter. Uh, but if you want to follow the combined force of us at Blowing Cartridges, you can find us at BlowCartPod on both Facebook and Twitter. Or if you prefer mail of the e-kind, BlowingCartridge at gmail.com to have a more direct line of contact with us. Gonna not lie, I haven't checked that inbox. I don't know if you have. I don't even know if we have emails. I'm assuming direct, we don't. Direct <laughs> line of contact, huh? Yeah. <laughs> we just get spam from Podbean, really. That's all that is. Well, if you want to be our first non-spam email, that's that position's still there. Hang um, on, let me just open Gmail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the show. Fire Tam. The end. I'm kidding. Well, you know, that's not a bad example of what you would call a review. And if you do want to leave a review on uh, iTunes or wherever you're listening, um, though preferably iTunes, because apparently that's the one that matters, uh, yeah, you should do that. And the more stars, the better. But, you know, if you if you only feel it's a four star, give us a four star and tell us why. And we actually have two new reviews. Well, they were both in December, but I haven't read them out yet on air yet. So I'll do that just now. So on the 2nd of December, 2020... Bonkman sixty nine, Bonk's a good game. Maybe we should re- maybe we should do an episode on Bonk one week. Zach, Jesus Christ, we're keen to explore Bonk a bit further. I don't even want to think about Bonk. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> but Bonkman sixty nine, nonetheless, he says great times, great topics. These apps have given me a bunch to go over and think about over drives to work. Always good to see this show up each fortnight. Well. There was unfortunately all those fortnights when the show didn't go up, but <laughs> thank you very much, Bonkman69. We aim to please and definitely keep on reaching out. Let us know what you think, and we appreciate your support. Bonkman, you're doing God's work, dude. Keep reviewing. The second review on the 17th of December 2020 was from Sexy Guy. That is <laughs> S-E-C-K-Y, guy. So, But okay. I, I would pronounce it Sexy Guy. And Sexy Guy says, nostalgic. Love listening to you guys about older game. Great topics to talk about. Keep up with the great podcast. I think that's very insightful comments. Sexy guy. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sexy guy, you can always give our cartridges a blow whenever you want. Oh, God. Oh, oh, <laughs> God damn it. He's one of your only fan subscribers, isn't he, Zach? Probably, yep. Oh, no. Uh, what have I walked into? <laughs> On that note, I think it's time to wave this episode goodbye. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Mum and Dad, for getting me Snowboard Kids 2 when I was a kid. Oh, my God. Now I sit in this investment that will probably pay for my children's college one day. Uh, yeah, more like a house loan, probably, by the time you wait another 10 years. <laughs>